Good morning. Good morning online. It's great to be together, even though uh, that may even be virtually. It's, uh, it's just encouraging that we get to come to God's Word together, study it, and uh, absorb it and apply it. That's our heart. Uh, if you want to, grab an outline. They're all around uh, on a seat next to you. We encourage note-taking. Um, this isn't a class, but um, I know for me, I, I, it's really helpful to write stuff down that I'm hearing. Somehow that, that makes a connection uh, in my heart and mind. And if you're online, we have uh, the outline available on our website. So you can get it there, you can download it, print it, uh, whatever you need to do. Um, you know, as a, as a communicator, uh, Jeff and I, when we think about delivering messages related to the text, obviously we're not trying to just come up with our own stuff, right? We're trying to discover and then communicate or highlight what the author intended to communicate. Sometimes we bump up against something and we're like, I don't know if I want to talk about that, <laughs> you know, but the Lord does. So we want to go there. And it was so interesting that the thing that just jumped off the page at me as I was studying this passage was fear. And to be honest, like our culture is overwhelmed with fear and anxiety, isn't it? And so I thought, I don't, I'm afraid to talk about fear because I don't want to you know, provoke that in the body here. But you know what? This passage is as good as about any passage in all of our Bible to deal with our fear. It's awesome what God does. It's awesome what Jesus does with his men. And you know what? They are terrified. Now, before I get to that, uh, I've got you a great image there. How many of you saw the, the movie Inside Out? Yeah, that's a fun one. Gives you lots of great exposure to emotion. I, I used anger a few years ago as we were preaching through Jonah. So I've gone back to Inside Out. And now we've got uh, fear. Let me give you a definition to consider. Um, fear is an acute, unpleasant emotion prompted by the perception of real or potential danger. Okay. An acute, unpleasant emotion prompted by the perception of real or potential danger. See, all of us are experiencing a broken world. And we, have, we, we know, you know what, Kevin just talked about something that happened to a family that is tragic. It is horrific. And we know that that stuff happens in a broken world. And so here's what we do. We order our lives around eliminating the possibility that something like that might happen to us. It reminds me of my approach to parenting when I was a brand new parent. So I thought, I don't really know what it's supposed to look like, but I certainly know what I don't want it to look like. So I'm going to do everything I can to avoid what I don't want to happen. That's a horrible strategy for parenting. Horrible. What if we were to order our lives, instead of ordering it around what to avoid, we ordered it around what to pursue? 
rather than to thinking about all the danger and threats and all that stuff that's out there, what if we went after what we know is right and good and true and life-giving and we just went after that with all of our hearts? That'd, that'd feel all right, wouldn't it? I guarantee you we would experience less of the anxiety that we do. Well, I, I really believe this passage is going to help us deal with this thing in our life called fear. Now, I want to remind us where we were last week and then show us how we get to this idea of fear in this passage. It's, it's plain as day. And, and truly, if you think about what the disciples have experienced since the arrest of Jesus, probably the primary thing they've experienced is fear over and over again. Here it is. Uh, they, so last week, uh, Jeff talked about the, um, going to the, the road to Emmaus, and these guys are coming back. In verse 33, it says, they, arose, they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. Remember, after they saw Jesus disappear, and they're like, he's, he's risen. we got to go back and tell the guys. So they found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed, and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what happened on the road, the road to Emmaus, and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. And as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them. Now we're going to get to that, but, but here's what we need to know. When those guys got back to Jerusalem, John 20 tells us this. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the day that Christ rose, the doors were locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. So these guys come back from Emmaus. They've just seen the risen Christ. They go to where they know the disciples are hanging out, knock on the door, the, you know, the locks are all undone. They bring them in, close the door back, and they're, they're afraid out of their minds. The leader, their leader has just been executed. And, and they're like, we're next. If we're following that guy, Rome is coming after us. So they huddle together behind locked doors. And then they start to tell stories to one another about what's been happening who they have seen, Christ making his appearance known to them. And then sure enough, as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them. And here's what he said to them. Peace to you. How about that? It's sort of like he knew they were afraid. Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened. Why? Because they thought they saw a spirit. So, again, there, there's a lot about that that's understandable given all that they have seen and experienced in those few uh, hours. But, but there also seems to be something about what Jesus expects for them that isn't currently happening. It's sort of like you would think that they would see Jesus and their first thing that they would do, they'd be going, yes, it happened. Just like you said it would. But they see Jesus and the first thing that happens, they are startled and frightened. 
they can't believe their eyes. He offers them peace, a stark contrast to their fear. Well, he goes on from there to address their fear. And, and even like, so I, I guarantee you everybody in this room has a fear of some kind. Or you can remember feeling some pretty serious fear in recent days, uh, maybe recent months. I don't know how far back. But rather than avoiding it, let's go right at it, just like Jesus did. Here's what he does. He offers them his flesh and bones right there. Uh, verse 38, he said to them, Why are you troubled and why do, you, why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself? Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they were still... And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said, I'll talk about that in a minute. That's a strange sentence. Um, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. It's interesting to me that right after saying peace to you, he asks them two questions. It's sort of like, and you've heard Jeff and I mention this before, when we go back to Genesis where uh, Adam and Eve sin and then God says, Adam, where are you? And it's not because God doesn't know where Adam is, right? He wants Adam to know where he is. So he asks these guys two questions. Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? Those are great questions for us. Why are you troubled? What is it in your life right now that troubles you? That distresses you? That disturbs you? That causes you to feel undone? What is that? And why do you think it has the impact that it, do, that it does on your thoughts and your actions? And then not only that, why do you doubt? Why do doubts arise in your hearts, it's not that we shouldn't ever, but when we do, we should probably know why those doubts are there. Just simply put, and I don't want to get ahead of myself here, but it's, it's sort of like Jesus is saying, I told you what was going to happen, and now it's happened. You spent three years with me. You've seen it all, heard it all. So what's the relationship between all that you have experienced and what you're experiencing right now. And why does what you're experiencing right now lead you to a place of doubt instead of a place of assurance? It's a great question for us to ponder. Now, Jesus doesn't just expose their struggle. He's not just rebuking them. He is going to speak to this struggle and help them face their fear. Uh, Professor Daryl Bach puts it this way, doubting is met with revelation. Love that phrase. Doubting is met with revelation. We read in the beginning of the book of Acts, as Luke is uh, describing the early days of the church, it says, he, that is Jesus, presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, 
appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So what Jesus does is he recognizes that they have fear. He recognizes that they're having some doubts. And so he offers them some proofs of his bodily resurrection. And that's very, very important. I want you to write down three words that uh, represent what Jesus offers them. Write down hear, see, and touch. We're taught at a very early age that we have five senses, right? And Jesus offers them things that they can hear, see, and touch to address those internal fears and doubts that they are carrying around with them. They can hear the voice of Jesus. They can see his hands and his feet that he shows them. And they can touch his skin. He even offers to eat something in their midst. And it's kind of interesting reading what all the commentators have said about, well, why why does he, you know, order up fish and chips, you know? What's going on there? Um, I don't think that God is hungry, okay? Someone may disagree with me, but it's like, is there anything more fundamental to living than eating? If you don't eat, what happens? You die. So like we all get that. We like we understand that every single day we're looking for something to eat. We got to have it to make it to the next day. So it's almost like Jesus is saying, I am going to identify with you and invite you to identify with me in the most basic of ways. I'm just going to eat right here in front of you. I don't need it, but I want you to know that it's really me. It's not something, it's not a representation of me. It's not a phantom of me. It's not a spirit. It's me. It's the guy that you spent the last three years with. All of the memories and experiences and things that we did together. It's me. I'm here. I'm the same guy. But I'm resurrected. So that means I am different now than I have ever been. And I will always be this for all of eternity. It's an amazing moment, this kind of uh, integration of flesh and spirit in the Godhead. I'm not going to get too off into Trinitarianism here, but the second person of the Trinity takes on a physical body that he will have for all of eternity. And that is a forever reminder that he identified with us in our place of need. And did for us what we could never do for ourselves. Unbelievable. Amazing. Their response, this is that weird phrase. It says they were still, they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling. I'm, I'm not sure how you do that. But here's a simple way to, to interpret that phrase. They are so overcome by what they're experiencing. The response is like, I can't believe it. They do believe it, but that's, you see, it's like the idiom. They, uh, it's too good to be true. It's what they had hoped would be true, but when they saw Jesus hanging on the cross, they thought, it's gone forever. We've lost everything, and then there he is standing in front of them, and they're like, is, is it really him? 
Could it be? Is it going to happen like he said it would? That's where they are. Now, I want to say a quick word about bodily resurrection. Um, because throughout all of history, in, in, as far as the church is concerned, there's been a lot of speculation about who Jesus was and what he was like. And did he really rise? And if he did, what did they see? What did they not see? What did they imagine? Like All of that. Bodily resurrection, here's a couple of thoughts about that. Like, he had to show up physically. If he doesn't show up physically after the cross, then it puts everything in doubt. So, the bodily resurrection verifies that Christ's death satisfied the wrath of God. He, like, him being present physically tells them what I did on the cross, the Father is fully satisfied. Sins have been covered. Death has been defeated. Like, I am the guarantee that that is true. So he has to show up bodily, and he does. Secondly, it verifies that Jesus was all that he claimed to be. He said that he was the Messiah. He communicated that he could uh, forgive sin, that he could be our mediator, our substitute, this verified that he wasn't just imagining all of that, that he really was who he said he was. And then lastly, it verifies that those who trust in Jesus will be resurrected bodily at his return, like he promised, like is anticipated throughout all the rest of Scripture. So one of the cool things that Jesus is doing here is he is modeling a resurrected body. If you're wondering, I wonder what it's going to be like when Jesus comes back and makes all things new and I am, I am raised either literally like, like snatched up in a rapture or I'm actually raised from the dead, reunited with my body. What's that going to be like? Well, he's modeling it right there. Recognizable evidences of what life was like on earth, and yet he's walking through walls. He's appearing and disappearing. He's not restricted by the physical things that we all are accustomed. Like, I can't walk through walls. I can't just transport myself to another state. But apparently, with a resurrected body, you can. And there are no more boundaries as far as sin, struggle, pain, loss, all of that. It's all gone. Absolute, utter freedom like we can hardly even comprehend. Jesus is putting that on display. 1 Corinthians 15, 51 says, We will all be changed. Changed into what? Look at Jesus. See what he's like. I uh, love what Timothy Keller says about this idea of resurrection, especially as it relates to death. For a Christian, death can do nothing more than make you better. Think about that. For a Christian, death can do nothing more than make you better. Back to our questions. Why are you troubled? Why do you doubt? Your greatest adversary, the one thing that 
strikes fear in all of us in light of our mortality, the, the, the worst it can do is make us better. See how that begins to address our fear? doesn't mean that we never feel that emotion. It just means that it doesn't have mastery over our lives. That's what Jesus is trying to do for his men. Now, we have a real challenge as we come to this passage. Wouldn't you love to have been in that room? Wouldn't that have been great? Like, I was there. I saw it. I heard it. I touched it. And you and I can't be there. So what do we do? Well, this is what we got. And you're not going to get more than this. You have eyewitness testimony to what happened in that room. So you and I, what we have to decide is, can we trust what was written? Is this enough evidence For us to believe that Jesus Christ really did rise from the dead. That he really was who he said he was. That he really did accomplish what we're told he accomplished. Um, I want to take you through some apologetics. Which is really just kind of support for the idea that our Bible is reliable. Because once again, like this is all we have. And if this isn't reliable, then it's all, it's all to be rejected. It's not like we can pick and choose. Either this is reliable or it's not. So why do we believe it's reliable? There's plenty of people that say that it isn't. So I want to give you six E's of biblical reliability. This comes from a guy named Frank Turek. And by the way, we're talking about right now media. David mentioned that. You've got that. Uh, QR code on your outline, you can go to Right Now Media. You can either type in the word apologetics in the search bar or you can just click on, I think there's a fast link over to the left. All those resources just pop right up. That's all apologetics. Everything about why our faith is reliable and trustworthy, all the tough questions that all of us have thought about or are perhaps asked, Those resources address all of that. Phenomenal, phenomenal library. So that's my little advertisement. Let me look at six E's for biblical reliability. Um, These are characteristics of our Bible that help us understand its reliability. First of all, it's early testimony. Early testimony. Some will say that it wasn't written for hundreds of years after the resurrection of Christ. The problem is you have church fathers who started the church who quote almost the entire New Testament. If you put all of it together, we we have thousands and thousands of writings, manuscripts of early church fathers or founders, and they are quoting Scripture. So we know that it can't be hundreds of years later because it was already there. They were already using it communicating it, scattering it around to the churches. So we have testimony of what happened with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and the early formation of the church within years, certainly decades of when it happened. We have early testimony. Secondly, we have eyewitness testimony. 
we have the record of the people that were there. Now, if, if you saw a car accident, like you were, st- you were right there, you saw it happen, and then you came to me, and you said, I was there, I saw it, and then you told me all about it, and then there were other people who saw it, and what they said matched exactly what you said, wouldn't it be strange if I was like, I don't believe you. I think you're just making all that up. Like, that just wouldn't even make sense. But we have an entire New Testament full of eyewitness testimony. And it has been proven. Um, here's just one example. There's a Roman historian, a guy named Colin Hemmer. He went through the book of Acts, and he identified 84 historical eyewitness details that could not have been known unless somebody actually saw it for themselves, Luke, or he had talked to somebody who knew those details. And it's things like, you know, where harbors are found and what roads take you here or there or how a city is formed. It's, it's the kind of stuff that you got to see to know. So eyewitness testimony, tons of it. Embarrassing testimony. If you're, writing, if you're writing letters to promote your cause, then you're probably going to just, and if you're making it up, you're going to leave out those things that don't look really good about your cause. So like disciples who don't believe, who doubt, who run, who deny, you're probably just going to leave that stuff out. But it's all there. Or what about when Jesus calls uh, Peter, Satan. You know when he says, get behind me, Satan? Like, that doesn't look really good for the cause either. It's that, that kind of stuff, you just leave that out. You want to put your best stuff forward. And yet, our New Testament is full of statements about uh, the fallibility of the, even the early church leaders. That's a reason to believe. Embarrassing testimony. Excruciating testimony. This is that idea of nobody dies for a lie that they know is a lie. Now, there's plenty of people who have died out of sheer deception. But if somebody knows something's a lie, they're not going to die for it. And if you just want to engage this a little more fully, uh, look up Fox's Book of Martyrs and the description of what happened to the apostles in terms of how they lost their lives. Just read that. And then you tell me if anybody would endure what they endured for the sake of the gospel if they really knew that Jesus wasn't who he said he was. Excruciating testimony. Then expected testimony. Um, We're going to see that Jesus points back to the whole Old Testament. uh, Jeff talked about this last week, um, how... There was just this anticipation of a Messiah. There was a lot of questions about who and when and where. But the whole Old Testament is expecting a solution to man's great problem. And that is the nature of Scripture. Just highlight Isaiah 53. Um, Expected testimony, prophecy. And then lastly, extra-biblical testimony. Um, Turek mentions there are 10 ancient non-Christian sources 
within 150 years of Jesus' life that all verify his existence and the existence of many others who are mentioned around him. So, and then we have archaeological discoveries like ad nauseum that only verify, don't contradict the biblical record that we have. So, whatever fears or doubts that we have, this is the only antidote. (laughs) And you and I have to decide, do we trust this book or not? And I'm telling you today, there is great reason to trust every word and to let this address the fears that you have. Uh, Frank Turek summarizes this idea here. He says, New Testament writers didn't create the resurrection. The resurrection created the New Testament writers. They became who they were because of what Jesus did. 1 Corinthians 15, um, we see Paul's description. Of course, he wasn't in that room. He met Christ on the road to Damascus, but he also had to receive eyewitness testimony just like we do. Um, And he writes this in 1 Corinthians 15. He, that is Jesus, was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. So he's saying, if anything that we're presenting isn't accurate, there's plenty of people still alive that will point it out. And they're not. Then he goes on to say he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, Paul says, he appeared also to me. So Jesus was very careful about presenting himself arisen so that they might walk in faith rather than in fear. It's no surprise after... He appears to them, they become eyewitnesses that they're called to sort of take the stand, so to speak. He basically says, you've seen it, now I need you to tell others what you have seen. These are the witnesses called. Look in verse 44, he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things." I'm not going to go into a lot of detail here because Jeff did a great job last week, again, of thinking about how does the word, what is written, inform what we believe. But just notice here that Jesus himself is pointing to what is written. So scripture really is the foundation of our beliefs. These aren't just really smart thoughts of some inspired people. This is God speaking into time and space, giving us, capital T, truth. And then we either order our lives around that or not. It's just that simple. I don't mean that it's easy. I just mean that it's simple. 
He refers to the three divisions of the Hebrew canon, the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. It says he opened their minds. So there's supernatural illumination. And um, I try to think of how do I, how do I illustrate that? How do I work that out in my own mind? And I, I thought this, there's, there's probably problems with this illustration, but it would be like if I don't know a language, we'll just say Spanish, and somebody comes to me, and they start speaking Spanish, and they are just going at it. I know that it's a language, so I intellectually get that. I just don't know what you're saying, and so I can't do anything with it. The Bible, for those who don't have illumination, it's like gibberish. It just, they can't do anything with it. It's not, it, they don't understand what it means and then they can't apply it to their lives. They need a translator. That's what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit translates that which would be impossible for us to comprehend otherwise. 1 Corinthians 2, 12 through 14, Paul writes, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So all the more important for us to be attentive to the Holy Spirit and make sure that we're connecting that with what we are reading in our Bibles. Um, we come across here what would be considered the Great Commission in Luke's Gospel, that, that appears in other Gospels as well. But it's that statement uh, that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning in Jerusalem. Uh, we'll just sum that up this way. We as God's people, if we believe what we believe, then we're called to urge repentance and promise forgiveness. It can't be said any simpler. Urge repentance, urge people to turn from their own way to God and his way. Knowing that by doing so, you're forgiven. When you reach out to God, he does for you what you can't do for yourself. You can't earn it. You don't deserve it, but he gives it as a gift. All that's required is turning, repentance. It's a change of mind. It's seeing Jesus differently than you did when you were in your natural mind. That's the mission. And notice, I want to highlight this today. It begins at home. I, so we got, we're supposed to reach the world, right? It's to go to all nations, but it begins in Jerusalem. So you and I, we need to get serious about this book, attentive to the Holy Spirit in our home. That's where it starts. And then we, then we scatter from there. We can go to the rest of the world. He calls them witnesses. The Greek word there is the word that we use to get the word martyr. Isn't that interesting? 
that it is those who would, they are sent to deliver the good news at great cost. And that's exactly how the disciples saw themselves as the church was formed. Uh, Acts 10, 39 through 43. This is in one of those sermons that they gave. They gave many of those. Uh, We are witnesses of all that Jesus did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They, that is the Jews, put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Interesting contrast. That message with the group of guys huddled behind a locked door. What happened? One thing happened. They saw the risen Christ and it changed everything. And you and I have record of that moment. And it can change our lives as well. No less than theirs. He did encourage them to wait to be clothed with power. Look at verse 49. It says, Behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. A couple of very quick thoughts on that. The assumption here is that the witnesses will not be able to fulfill their calling without enablement. So again, this isn't just like, hey, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, get some grit, and get out there and get to work. He's saying, I don't want you to do anything until you have the enablement of the promised Holy Spirit. And that applies to you and me as well. We, we cannot have the mindset that we're going to go do something great for God just because we're so sincere. Like this, this means great humility, great dependence Evangelism is much more than just relaying information. It's being a conduit of God's redemptive work. It's like we're, we're, just, we're just a mouthpiece. And God chooses to use us in that way to accomplish his purposes. I love the, the incredible contrast. I read it just a minute ago in Acts 10. But uh, Jesus says to his men right before he ascends, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria to the end of the earth. That is the story of the church. And you are as much a part of that story as any of those guys What troubles you? Why do you doubt? It's okay if you have them. But what would it look like for you to move from a place of huddling in a closed room with a locked door to being out in the marketplace with 
coworkers and friends and family members and neighbors and just telling them what you have seen? What would move you to that place? I'm going to give you an opportunity to ask the Holy Spirit to give you discernment about what you need to take away from this passage. What, what, what have you heard today? What has God put on your heart today so that you might walk in greater alignment with his heart and his mission to reach this world? Take a few moments, write something down, and then that, you get to prayerfully apply that to your life going forward after today. So take a moment, prayerfully ask God to show you that. Spirit, we're grateful that uh, we have your guidance, we have your encouragement, your enablement, your instruction, your correction. Pray that you would give us real clarity about who Jesus was and is, all that he has done, all that he offers. Lord, would you make resurrection life a thought that is in the front of our minds and uh, defines how we live day in and day out. We invite you to uh, order our lives, send us where you please, and use us for your purposes. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.